Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode. In this week's episode, I'm going to discuss how I invest, save, spend, give, and borrow. I recently read a book by Josh Brown. It was called How I Invest My Money. Finance experts reveal how they save, spend, and invest. I really enjoyed the premise, and it's actually the inspiration for today's episode. Today's a lot less about me trying to change your mind and a whole lot more about transparency. Here's why. Research done by Morningstar back in 2008 revealed that professional money managers, professional stock pickers, actually hate to eat their own cooking. This research was only made possible following a rule change by the SEC. The SEC started to require professional fund companies to actually disclose how much money their managers actually had invested in their own funds. Morningstar started to gather this manager information that was newly available and extract some interesting insights. So what this Morningstar research found was that about half of these professional money managers, these professional stock pickers actually had $0 of their own money invested in their own fund. 70% of these professional balanced funds, that's about 60% stock, 40% bonds typically, had $0 of their own money invested in their own funds. That's odd, right? These same professional money managers are professing an ability to beat the stock market, but yet they put $0 of their own money into the fund. How perverse are those incentives? If you outperform the market, you receive a bonus, but if by chance, and again, a high probability, you underperform, you don't actually have any of your own money in the fund and you continue to receive your normal compensation or salary. It actually reminds me of a book I read by Michael Lecter called OPM, Other People's Money, How to Attract Other People's Money for Your Investments, the ultimate hedge. That's why I really like the insights that could be offered when one asks, how do you invest? As they're simultaneously asking for professional insight around the question of how should I invest? Though the question, how do you invest seems very obvious, it rarely gets asked. For years, I've spent the vast majority of my day helping people answer the question, how should they invest? But I can't recall a time where clients actually asked me, how do you invest? One of the reasons I really like the question, how do you invest, is because it cuts to the chase. It helps us understand what somebody truly thinks. Where do they believe their money will be treated best? And that's why I believe the reason so few professional fund managers actually invest their own funds is because they know the empirical data. They know the odds, and they choose to invest their money differently. They know that study after study has demonstrated the efficiency of the capital markets through the empirical data. In 2020, there was a daily average 
653.4 billion in world stock trading volume. The market effectively enables competition among many market participants who voluntarily agree to transact. This trading aggregates a vast amount of dispersed information and immediately drives it into asset prices. The idea that assets reflect all knowable information isn't particularly new. Gene Fama back in 1970 used the advent of computers to demonstrate this. This research ultimately resulted in him being awarded a Nobel Prize. Dr. Gene Fama's research helps us better understand why it is so difficult to consistently outperform global capitalism through predictions. Let's look at some of the research. The S&P actually publishes an annual report. They call it the SPIVA report card, S-P-I-V-A. I'll link to it in the show notes. You should check it out. But it helps us understand how do active managers do relative to a passive benchmark like the S&P 500. And year after year, the results are about the same. So in a year like 2020, a year that would have been an awesome opportunity if you could predict economic outcomes before they became a reality and were priced into assets, that should have shown up in results. But in the year 2020, 57.1% of active managers actually underperformed the passive index of the S&P 500. Now at face value, that means that 43% of active managers did actually outperform their benchmark. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? But let's really dig into that. Let's look at the arithmetic of active management, essentially predictions. Nobel Prize winner Bill Sharp actually taught us a little bit about the arithmetic of active management 20 or so years ago. Sharp explained that mathematically, the average of actively traded dollars will equal the return on the average of passively managed dollars in every single instance. And importantly, that for every relative winner, there's going to be a relative loser. The bottom line is that absolute returns are going to be all over the place, but the average relative return mathematically is always zero. So essentially, it's a coin toss because for every active manager that's a winner, there's going to be a loser. The relative return of active management is always going to be zero, but that assumes that we can trade for zero and that assumes that funds are free. And generally speaking, actively traded or actively managed funds are significantly more expensive and much less tax efficient. So if 43% of active managers actually outperform the S&P 500, in the year 2020, how would we be able to determine whether it was luck or skill? Well, one thing that we could do is we could broaden the analysis period from one year to 10 years. Actually, Vanguard and many others have done this study for us already. I'll link to this study in the show notes. But in Vanguard's 10-year study that ended in 2016, it found that 93% of active stock pickers actually underperformed their benchmark. In 2017, the Wall Street Journal published their own 15-year study and found that 92% of active stock pickers actually couldn't beat the benchmark that they were assigned to beat. I'll link to that one as well in the show notes. The long-term track record of active managers is pretty abysmal. Maybe that's new information to you. Maybe it's not. But certainly another characteristic of active management that further obfuscates reality is the survivorship bias. That same S&P Dow Jones study, the SPIVA scorecard, found a survivorship bias issue, whereas over the last 20 years, 70% of U.S. funds have gone away. They've either been shut down or merged into other funds, almost certainly due to performance and track record. If as an industry, 
you could hide 70% of your underperformers over the course of a 20-year period, you might be able to positively influence public perception of reality. Sometimes, when I share this data, the data that has informed how I invest our family's money, people will toss out an anecdote almost to disprove the data. Yeah, that's not true. What about, and fill in the blank. One of the most common names that fills that blank is Warren Buffett. At the time of this podcast, he's 90 years old and he's worth $98 billion. Many have argued that he's the most successful American investor ever. Buffett's discipline, observations, and savvy as an investor have been influential to millions, and I'm no exception. Back in college, I started reading the Berkshire Hathaway Chairman's Letter, and I haven't stopped since. You might be surprised what Buffett's written over the years. Back in 1996, in his Chairman's Letter, Buffett wrote, Most investors, both institutional and individual, will find that the best way to own stock is through an index fund that charges minimal fees. Those following this path are sure to beat the net results after fees and expenses delivered by the great majority of investment professionals. Buffett followed that up in 2004 with his chairman's letter stating, over the past 35 years, American businesses have delivered terrific results. It should therefore have been easy for investors to earn juicy returns. All they had to do was piggyback corporate America in a diversified, low-expense way. An index fund that they never touched would have done the job. Instead, many investors have had experiences ranging from mediocre to disastrous. Do those results surprise you? They surprised me the first time I encountered them. I believe those quotes imply that Warren Buffett knows the success profile of the average active stock picker. It appears as though he understands the long odds of active stock picking beating the market through predictions. To prepare for this podcast, I went ahead and evaluated the recent performance of Berkshire Hathaway against the S&P 500. What I observed was the S&P 500 outperformed Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett over the last one year, three years, five years, and 10 years. Whether or not Warren Buffett's performance or track record is an exception to the earlier data or not is missing the point. Let's not mistake possibilities for probabilities. The probability of finding somebody to consistently outperform the market net of their fees through economic predictions is unbelievably low. Therefore, when it comes to my own investments, my personal investments are designed for sleeping well at night and funding my goals, not necessarily scouting for managers that peddle performance. I don't think that there are very many managers that can actually outperform net of their fee global capitalism. And that personal investment conviction is anchored in evidence not my opinion. So before we jump into the details, let me run through the usual disclaimer. This podcast is informational and educational only, and it shouldn't be construed as specific investment, legal, or accounting advice. Investing involves risk, and obviously no strategy assures success. This is simply how I invest my money. Investing starts with values and beliefs about money to build a custom plan. The discovery of values and beliefs about money can help us create specific goals we can quantify those goals and put timelines around them. We can organize those goals in terms of priorities. We can organize the goals as needs, wants, and wishes. So in the event that there's ever competing priorities and there's a finite number of dollars, we know which order to fund the goals. For me, flexibility and control over our family's time is an unforeseen return on wealth. Therefore, because I value that flexibility and control, 
I work hard to avoid moving the goalposts. There's something in psychology called the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation. Essentially, think about this as chasing rainbows. Can you remember the last time that you were dreaming about buying a new car, getting a promotion at work, moving into a nicer house, or finding a partner to share life with? Do you remember fantasizing about how happy you would be after you attained those things? You eventually return back to your baseline happiness. This is the hedonic treadmill. Once I came to understand the hedonic treadmill, I started organizing my financial goals in a different way. I believe that we can maximize our financial fulfillment through almost an equation, a ratio. Experiences divided by stuff. While experiences have staying power and often get better over time, our stuff doesn't really have that same attribute. Financial author Morgan Housel puts it this way, past a certain level of income, what you need is just what sits below your ego. Lifestyle creep is a real thing. Simplistically, wealth is the accumulated leftovers after I spend what I take in. Real wealth is generally hidden. It is the income that we didn't spend. Wealth is an option not yet taken to buy something later. Speaking of buy, what can money buy you? Sometimes if we're given too many choices, we can be paralyzed, overwhelmed by our options. So what if we had to simplify it to just three categories? What would they be? I could make a case that money can buy you things, experiences, and impact. And you can organize your financial goals around those. Another powerful way to reframe and clarify money is to think about the destinations. Where will it end up? There's really only four options. You'll spend some. Your heirs will get some. Charity has an option of getting some. And depending upon your decisions will determine the fourth category of how much the government gets along the way. Most people generally agree money won't buy us happiness, but it sure helps us avoid misery. By starting with our values and our beliefs about money, that can become our foundation. It's our why. Then the why creates the destination. Once we've defined the destination, how we get there becomes a lot more clear. So now that I've shared a few of the values and beliefs that I have about money, let's move past conceptual to tangible, from theoretical to kind of brass tacks. What does this look like at an execution level? Well, because flexibility and control are the primary returns I'm targeting with our wealth, I prioritize becoming financially unbreakable. Thus, I'm incredibly well diversified. My investments look a lot like a four-legged stool. The first category is traditional stocks and bonds. A second category is multifamily real estate. Third category is land. And the fourth category is business ownership. However, there's another layer to the diversification. I look to diversify the tax character of all the underlying investments so that our family will be in a good position to deal with the certainty of uncertainty related to the tax code in years to come. Some of the investments are in pre tax retirement vehicles, much like a traditional 401k or traditional IRA. Some are in Roth, whether in a 401k or a Roth IRA. These are post-tax contributions that will grow tax-free and will subsequently be spent income tax-free years down the road. Some of them are essentially brokerage or taxable accounts where I look to harvest these gains on a long-term capital or preferred rate. So again, in pursuit of becoming financially unbreakable, let's revisit the diversification. I own a variety of different asset classes in a variety of different countries across a variety of different currencies in a variety of different accounts 
which will change the tax character of either the gains or the income in the future. Ultimately, this belief goes all the way back to 1952, when Nobel Prize laureate Harry Markowitz famously said, diversification is the only free lunch in investing. So if step one was to start with values and beliefs about money, step two would be to design an investment thesis that's informed by financial science and decades of academic research. Because I didn't personally want to mistake possibilities for probabilities, I wanted to anchor my personal investment thesis in financial science. I wanted to turn to Nobel laureates and their insights to anchor my beliefs, the likes of Harry Markowitz, Bill Sharp, Gene Fama, Myron Scholes, and Robert Merton. It's these Nobel laureates, combined with decades of academic, peer-reviewed research, why I've come to think of the investment approach as being evidence-based. Step three is to use passive strategies and to identify best-in-class passive managers to organize a tax-efficient approach. If you were to look under the hood at my stocks and bonds that I own, I own over 10,000 stocks in 44 different countries and over 30 different currencies. This is the same approach that I recommend for all of the clients that come to me and ask the question, how should I invest? Though I believe it's very difficult to increase the expected return of a portfolio through economic predictions and active management, I do believe the financial science is clear that we can pursue a higher expected return if we structure a portfolio along specific dimensions of expected return. A well-diversified portfolio can emphasize market areas offering higher expected return potential. Thus, I have tilted my portfolio towards smaller companies and companies that from a relative price perspective are cheaper, often referred to as value stocks. To quantify things in real rough terms, over the 91 years from 1928 through 2019, small companies outperformed large companies by about 2% per year, and value companies, which are otherwise cheaper, have outperformed growth companies by about 3% a year. Step five in my approach to investments is to diversify globally. The last 10 years in the United States has offered an exceptional return. However, don't have to go back all that far in history to find a period of sustained underperformance. The 2000s is often referred to as the lost decade as it pertains to the U.S. stock market. For example, the S&P 500 annualized return during that 10-year period was actually negative 0.95%. However, in rough terms, the emerging markets were up over about 10% per year, and the international small cap value index was up over 13.5% during that same time frame. So how did the U.S. follow up the lost decade? Well, the next 10 years, the S&P enjoyed a return in excess of 13%, while the emerging markets, which was victorious during the prior 10 years, lagged at a little over 4% per year. No one knows what the next 10 months will bring, let alone what the next 10 years will bring. But I do know that if I maintain a patient and disciplined approach globally through the good times and the bad times, it'll put me in position to increase the likelihood of my long-term investing success. Step six of how I think about my investments is to use bonds as a ballast to provide some downside protection. Thus, I use high credit quality bonds. Why own bonds? Well, there have been extended periods of time, 10 plus years, where the S&P 500 has actually underperformed a one-month U.S. Treasury. There was the 15-year time frame from 1929 through 1943. There was a 17-year span where the S&P 500 actually underperformed 
a one-month treasury from 1966 through 1982. And then again, there was another 13-year period where stocks underperformed treasuries from 2000 through 2012. Much like shocks or struts in your car, bonds can be a way to smooth out the inevitable ups and downs of the stock market. Finally, I believe that you can add more value to your outcomes through planning than you can through economic predictions. Thus, when I invest, I want to do it in a tax and expense conscious manner. The industry and academic research that I've reviewed that's informed this specific conviction indicates that I can experience 0.5 up to 1.9% greater returns through a deep tax integration and some proactive planning. I do this through asset location preferences, owning specific assets in specific types of accounts, taxed managed portfolios, tax loss harvesting, portfolio accounting, and working through an estimated year-end distribution in advance to plan for portfolio incomes so tax strategies can be deployed. One of the greatest expenses, if not the greatest expense that I'll have between now and the time I die is tax. So a little proactive planning can go a long way to reduce that inevitable expense and drag on my investments. So there you have it. That's how I answer the question, how do I invest? Specifically, how do I invest as a legal fiduciary informed by financial science? That's how I've answered the question, where will our money be treated best? And how should we structure it to be most supportive of our goals and ultimately our values? If this topic is interesting to you, I'll link to a white paper in the show notes that we published on the topic. So, thanks for the time. Hopefully you walked away with a few new ideas. And until we do it again, be well.